Well, good morning. Uh, well, we are uh, in week three this week of this series, Who We Are. And so what we're doing with this series is we are looking at what makes us tick as a church. What drives us? Where are we going? And so the way we've kind of approached this, this series this week, and we do this every August, where we look at either our core values or our vision or, or something like that, so that way we can revisit it and keep that in front of us. Uh, But what we've been doing this time is we've been looking at this vision statement that uh, two or three years ago, uh, the the elder team, we got together and we were praying and we're studying together and we're reading books and we're discussing. And the questions we're asking are things like, what does God want to do next with Easton Church? Where does he want to lead us? Who does he want us to reach? And and what what will it look like for us to do that? And so as a a team, we, we kind of start to write these things down. And so what we've been doing this series is kind of going through that. And looking at some of those. And so here's some of that statement. Thriving, not just surviving. That's how we would sum it up. We want to be a church that thrives, not just survives. And so we expand on that and we say, well, Easton Church desires to be a church that thrives and does not just settle for surviving. We long to see our surrounding communities as well as the world impacted by the gospel so that lives are changed and impacted in all areas, including but not limited to marriages, parent-child relationships, work relationships, and friendships. And then as we kept talking, we thought, well, we need to kind of flesh out what thriving looks like in some areas so that we will know this is what we're shooting for, so that we can, we can say to you, here's what we think God is leading us, and here's what we think it will look like and why it's important. So we, we kind of further broke that out with several statements about what thriving means. And each of these weeks in the series, what we've been doing is taking one of those statements. And so the first week, we looked at uh, just kind of a general introduction about what thriving would look like. And then last week we looked at uh, racial diversity and generational diversity, what that would look like. Both of those messages you can catch online if you missed them. This week what I want to look at is this one. Thriving means being a church where people of all levels of spiritual maturity grow deeper in their love for the Lord and grow in their understanding of His love for them. And so as I look around this morning, as I kind of survey the, uh, the, the, the room here, I see a lot of differences. I, I see men, and I see women. And I could stop right there on the differences, and that would be enough. Right? But as I keep looking, and as I look a little longer, I, I see different generations. Right? I, I see some of you who might fit into what's called the builder generation, or the greatest generation. And then I see baby boomers of differing seasons, because that's such a broad span. I see millennials. I see what they might call Generation Xers, Ys, and Zs. I mean, I've got the whole alphabet of generations that are represented here or in this church. As I keep looking, I see there's different backgrounds. Some of you have grown up in church, maybe this same church your whole life. Maybe you've been in different types of churches. Others of you... Man, a week ago, maybe a month ago, maybe a year ago, you would never have imagined that you would be back in a church or in a church at all. And so we've got different backgrounds and different experiences. Some of you have uh, finished high school and gone on and gotten bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, and maybe some of you even have some kind of doctorate degree. And then and others, maybe you stopped at high school. As I look at uh, the, the types of jobs that we all carry, I see some of you are farmers and ranchers or some kind of agriculture, and others of you, you work in banking or IT or, or something like that. That's different. And so with all those differences comes differing opinions, 
a different way of thinking about things, a different way of seeing things or understanding things. And so here's the question. In a church, and, and, and you might remember we looked at in the blueprint series, a church is not a building, and a church is not an event you attend. A church is a group of people who belong to Jesus, who are being built by Jesus, and who bring the message of Jesus. So in a church, a group of people so diverse, with so many differences, how do you get a church? How do you get the church to get along? I mean, how do you get all these people with different opinions, different backgrounds, a different way of seeing things, how do you get them to get along? That's hard to do. But I think, I have something this morning that we're going to see in the scriptures, that if we would just get this, if we would just understand this, if we would just practice this, if we would just do this one thing, one thing, it would make a whole lot of difference. We would be able to make a greater impact. We would go further. We might enjoy church more, enjoy God more, enjoy each other more, just enjoy life more. If we just got this one thing and started working on it. Do you know what it is? All right, guys. Do you want to know what it is? Okay. I'm going to give it to you in two parts. All right? Here's the first part. You are not God. Okay, we've got to start there. Got to start there. You are not God. So, don't judge. Don't judge. Now, isn't that something you've always wanted to say? And you always wanted to say it in church? Let's do that. On three, we're all going to say, don't judge, all right? One, two, three. Don't judge. All right, now I want you to get up, find the person in the room who you want to say that to the most. And the... No. No. Good. I, I'm just testing you. I was just testing you to see if any of you flinched and moved. All right. Don't judge. Man, it's like a cuss word to some, and it's like freedom to others. Don't judge. Now, I'm going to have to do some defining, putting some parameters on this, putting some guardrails on this, and we're going to do that as we kind of go through the text this morning. It does that for us. But how do you get a church to get along? Because if, if in the church, what we're going to see Paul say this morning is the weak and the strong must get along. How do you do that? Don't judge. That's where it's going to start. So, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 14. If you want to um, grab your Bibles and go to that or your iPads or iPhones or whatever you're, you're going to be using this morning. Romans chapter 14, the text we read earlier this morning. If you need a Bible, there's some of the chairs there in front of you. And if you're using that Bible, page 1281 is where you're going this morning. 1281. Let me give you a little background on Romans and who Paul's writing to because we're jumping at the end of the book. So Paul, the apostle, right, this guy who has written the majority of the letters in your New Testament, and this guy who was well-known for just planting all these churches throughout uh, the, the, uh, the early world there, uh, the early first century, he's writing this letter to a church that's in Rome, a church that he's never actually been to, never seen the people face-to-face, but a church that's been around for a while. And then now, to be sure, Paul wants to get there. He, he intends to get to Rome to be able to spend time with this church. And now he's writing this letter while he's spending time with another church, a church that he spent about two years or so with, a church in a town called Corinth. Right now, now Rome, the church in Rome, so Paul didn't start this church. And so the, the way this church came into being was, you'll remember Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Some of you may be familiar with this. You've heard me talk about it. Uh, maybe you, you're not. So here's what it is. In Acts chapter 2, that's the fifth book of your, your New Testament there. Chapter 2, we read the story of a group of guys, people who were close followers of Jesus and a few of their family members. And, 
They were all in this upper room. And it was 9 o'clock in the morning. And they were waiting. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. They've seen him. But Jesus says, wait for me. Just stay in Jerusalem. Just wait until the Spirit comes upon you. So they're in this room. And, and all of a sudden, at 9 a.m. or so that morning, the Spirit just rushes in there with this mighty sound of wind. And there's fire, flames of fire, just kind of looking over their head, right? And now these guys are starting to talk in languages that they've never learned. They've never practiced. But then the people who speak those languages can hear them. Right? And so this thing is going on, but to others it might sound like a whole bunch of gibberish, right? And so you've got these people on the outside, well, what is that noise? And they kind of, they realize these people are just kind of jibber-jabbering. And someone says, man, these guys are drunk. It's like 9 a.m. in the morning, they couldn't even wait. I mean, I know it's 5 o'clock somewhere, but it's not here. And these guys are drunk. And then Peter, Peter, out of that, steps up. And he says, no, we're not drunk. But here's what's going on. And he starts to explain everything about Jesus, about who he was and how he came and the things he did, and then how he was put to death by those very people that are listening to him, and then how he rose from the dead. And he explains, as the first Christian sermon. And at the end of it, the people said, what should we do? They were pierced. They, 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 they needed to respond, and they said, what should we do? And Peter says, repent. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so out of that, the church, God's plan for the church was birth. And it was 3,000 people strong on the first day. Now, in that group of 3,000 people, there was a bunch of different types of people. There were some Jews and there were some non-Jewish people. People, non-Jewish people who had started converting and worshiping as Jews. And so they would, they would come to Jerusalem at certain times of the year to practice and celebrate feasts. If you were a good Jew... You would bring your sacrifice, or bring your money, and then buy your sacrifice in Jerusalem, and you would come and you'd sacrifice at the feast. And so, because a lot of Jewish people had been spread out in all different parts of Asia, and, and Rome would be one of those, uh, they would come from those different places. And so, you've got all these people who, after this feast and this celebration, they're going to go back to their hometowns. Well, a lot of them are going back now changed. They came as a good Jewish uh, person worshiping as a Jew or worshiping as a, a non-Jewish person but worshiping the Jewish God, and now they're going back as Christians, as people whose Savior is Jesus and who worship a risen Savior. And so now the church, which is 3,000 people strong on that first day, is now going to spread out because, remember, the church is not a building. The church is not an event to It's a group of people. And so this group of people, they're going to go all back to their homes. And so that's how the church in Rome likely got started, by a group of people who were here worshiping. And most people think that the people who planted that church in Rome, who started it, were some of the people you read about in your New Testament, named Priscilla and Aquila, and that they started this church. And so Paul's writing them. He says, I intend to come to you. And, and, and like Paul does with all of his writings, he usually starts with a lot of theology. Right? He, he lays a theological foundation. So Romans, it's, it's the same case. Right? So all through the book of Romans, Paul is expanding on what the gospel is and how it's the power of God, and, and how that shapes the way we live and changes the way we see things and understand God and, and all of that. And, and like Paul does in most all of his letters, he comes to a point where he's finished laying that theological foundation. And then he comes to a part where, where he starts to say, now, here's how we live this out. Here's what it looks like to put what I just explained into practice. You see, because Paul knew it's not enough just to know your Bible. It's not enough just to grow in biblical knowledge and to be smart Christians. If you stop there, you fail. But what you've got to do is take the knowledge that you have and the knowledge that you gain and then put it into practice. 
let it shape and change the way you live. And so Paul in his letters, you can usually see it pretty clearly defined. There's a spot where he switches gears and he says, now, or therefore, live this way. And so in Romans, that transition, that pivot point is Romans chapter 12. If you're reading through the book of Ephesians, another one of his, his letters that he wrote, it'd be chapter 4. And usually you can see that clear pivot point, theological foundation laid. Now here's what that means for the way you live. And so chapter 14 falls in that practical living it out section of Paul's letter to the Romans. And he's dealing with a church that's mixed, Jews and non-Jewish people. So you've got this church in Rome that, that was primarily Jewish at first, but then as the church grew and the gospel grew, it started to include non-Jewish people. Right? So you've got Jewish people and Gentile people uh, as Christians now. And so these, these Jewish people would be, uh, you know, like pious people. They, their lives were pretty pious. They were, they were morally good. You know, they were living their life according to the law. So they kind of just slide into this Christian thing, and they've kind of already got a good exterior. You know, they, their lives is kind of cleaned up. But then you've got these non-Jewish people, and they've been worshiping all kinds of different gods in all kinds of fun and interesting ways. And then they kind of slide into the Christian thing, and they're, 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 the belief system has kind of changed, but it's not yet filtered through everything that's in their past and their way of doing things and thinking hasn't quite caught up. And so you've got all these people now meshing together, and they're trying to, to be the church together. Now, now somewhere along the way, uh, the, uh, the Roman emperor starts to persecute some of the Jewish people. He starts to blame things on some of the Jews. And, uh, and they were scapegoats uh, for the Roman Empire. And so the Jews then were made to scatter at one point. And so what you have now happening now is all of a sudden these Jewish people, a lot of them likely in leadership in this Roman church, a lot of them who have kind of been around, they're gone. And then you've got all these non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, left. And so this church continues on and continues to grow, but it starts to look different because the Jews are not in the mix as much anymore. Well, the Jews, things settle down, the Jews come back, and now they've got this church, they left. It doesn't look the same. The, the, the people that are in leadership now, they do things a little differently. They live life a little differently. Nothing's changed with the, regard to the gospel, their message that they believe. It's all the same. But then it, they, they're just kind of living differently than what the Jews typically did. And so that creates some tension. And, and as you can imagine, that's why Paul's having to address some of that. He's trying to help them to understand how do you get a church that's full of diverse people with different backgrounds and different ways of seeing things. How do you get them to get along? All right? So... With that, let's, uh, let's jump into Romans 14. And Paul's going to start with this, don't judge. Don't judge. And now if I would expand that, verses 1 through 4, what he's going to say is, don't judge what God has already accepted. Don't judge what God has already accepted. So here we've got, now receive the one who is weak in the faith and do not have disputes over differing opinions. So, so Paul says, here's what you've got to do. You've got to receive, welcome in. That would be take someone in. That, that's like bring them into a relationship with you. Welcome them into your fellowship, into your group. That's not like what we typically do on a Sunday morning. Come a little closer. Yeah, we can engage on this level. Oops, stop a little too close. Back up a little bit. We can't go that deep. Right? We'll be cordial, but I'm not going to let you in. You're, you're too different. Right? We're, we're not talking about that kind of thing received, like just in an exterior way. Paul's saying, bring them in close. Accept them in. Receive them in as part of you. Because Paul is writing to a group of believers in Jesus. These are Christians in this church. This is, this is not Paul writing to a group of some Christians, some non-Christians. He's writing to Christians in this group. And he's saying, bring one another in. Welcome one another 
And he talks about the weak in the faith and the strong in the faith. And so what Paul's doing is he's setting up two categories, right? He's not trying to be derogatory. He's not insulting some. But here's what he means when he says the weak in faith. He says some of you, maybe you're new believers, maybe maybe you've got a, a, a background that, that is influencing this, but, but your faith, your understanding of God and what he's done has some limits and restrictions. There's things that you don't feel like you can do or should do, and, and you don't feel like any Christian should do those things. And so he calls those the weak in the faith. But he says there's, there's those of you who your understanding of God is, is grown, it's a little deeper, uh, you, you know some, some, some things and have applied it a little further than others, and so those restrictions are not there. You're, you're stronger in the faith. And so he's saying in these two groups, you've got to receive one another in. You've got to welcome one another. Now, we go on, but he says in verse 1, and do not have disputes over differing opinions. And so here's where I need to qualify some things. So Paul is not talking about sin issues here. Okay, we are not talking about sin here. He is talking to believers, people who have placed their trust in Christ, who have differing opinions on secondary issues. Issues that are not primary. We're not talking about the gospel here. We're not talking about someone saying that the way to get saved is different from trusting in Christ. We're not talking about someone saying you need to add this to your belief in Christ. We're not talking about those things. We're not talking about, you know, things that are moral and that the Scripture clearly defines as sin. So we're not talking about, you know, things like whether homosexuality is right or not and whether we should accept that or not. We're not talking about, you know, whether shacking up is right or not or whether we should accept that kind of stuff or not. We're talking about things like uh, secondary matters, that you can be a Christian on either side and still be walking with the Lord, right, and not be in sin. We're talking about things that it doesn't matter what side you fall on here, it's not going to be sin. We're talking about secondary, disputable issues, things that Christians tend to disagree on and argue, but that we should still be able to fellowship in. So I need to put those parameters there because uh, this type of message where I lead out with don't judge, right, which is everybody's favorite verse, is not an excuse to go out and go, don't judge, man. All right? No, not what I'm talking about. So I'm going to drop things like that throughout the sermon because if you just happen to pick and choose what you listen to, I want to make sure you hear me saying, I'm not saying that, okay? All right. Disputable opinions. Get you guys. Get together. Come on. Come on. Let's move on. We're studying the Bible here. All right. He says, look, one person, one person believes in eating everything, but the weak person eats only vegetables. And he goes on and, and he describes a situation where you've got, you know, this good Jew person, you know, they have these restrictions on what they eat. They don't eat pork. They don't eat bacon. No ham. You know, they, they only have certain things to eat. So maybe they carry that into their Christianity. But you're a non-Jewish person. You don't have those restrictions. So you're eating breakfast and you're eating your bacon. And, you, you know, you're enjoying that, right? And, and so these, these people are kind of coming together. But some of these people, they chose, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little further. I'm going the vegetarian route. No, no, vegetarian's not fun. I'm going vegan. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm not eating anything. No meat. Nothing that comes from now. All vegetables. Only vegetables. I'm eating from the earth, man. All right? And so Paul says, those people are in this church, and they are looking at the people who are eating meat. And they are judging those people. See, they put restrictions on them, but they're judging the people eating meat. And the people who are eating meat are, are, are kind of aware that the people not eating meat might be condemning them. You know, And so then they start to ridicule them. Now, before I go any further, I want to kind of bring this down to our level a little more. Because, you know, one of the things that could be going on here is Jewish people with their dietary restrictions. Uh, and, you know, but the other thing is, when Paul's writing, he's writing from Corinth. 
And you can find a similar situation uh, in, in this town of Corinth where you've got these people who've got this pagan background. And in this pagan background, they would sacrifice animals at the, at the, uh, the uh, pagan temple. And then what they would do after that meat was offered, then they would bring that meat to the marketplace and sell it at a discounted rate because it's kind of used, you know. And, and so some people would go to the market and they're like, ooh, cheap meat, you know, I'm going to buy that, right? But other people are like, that meat, that meat was sacrificed to idols. You can't eat that meat. Now, you and I, um, idols are not something that you and I are in touch with a whole lot, you know, especially in El Reno, this area. Uh, if you go maybe to the city, you'll see it a little more. But I want to try to kind of bring this home a little more to us. So um, they're talking about meat. I'm talking about donuts. Did you guys get your donuts this morning? Because I hope I didn't steal yours. This is, I tried to pick one of those that tends to be left over at the end of the Sunday. So I think this is like a cake, blueberry donut. All right, if you want it, it's available after the service, all right? All right, so imagine you're getting a donut. You go to this donut shop, and, and you, you know, you've been going to this donut shop, and they've got the freshest donuts in town, you know? And, and so you go into this donut shop, but one day you kind of look around, and, and you're noticing something different, right? You've never noticed it before. You look behind the counter, as I did one day in Wichita, when I was up there at the donut shop. And at the bottom of the counter, behind the counter, I see a, a statue. Now, this is Buddha. Now, this Buddha does not have the Buddha belly because he's been on the vegetarian diet, but I'm about to give him donuts, so it's coming. I saw this statue. And in front of the statue, I saw a plate of donuts and a bottle of orange juice. What's going on? Well, this person was a practicing Buddhist, I assume. And so what they were doing was they were offering what they're making, their donuts, to their God. Does that change anything for you all of a sudden now as you're going to a donut shop where you've now become aware that they offer their donuts to Buddha or to whatever God they serve? And you've seen now, and, or maybe it's a Chinese restaurant you go to and they've got their statues up in a Chinese restaurant and they're offering their food. Maybe they're doing it where you can't see. Does that now change it for you? You see? Okay, okay so good. So, so some of you, you are, I like this, thank you. You know, you, you can talk back to me, it's good. Uh, if you get too, too talky, I'll, I'll, I'll quiet you down. But, uh, you know, some of you are like, that, that's just a statue. It, it, the donuts are still precious in hell, right? And I, I know that's just a statue. But others of you, maybe you've got a background where you used to worship at a Buddhist temple. And you got delivered from that. Or, or maybe you've had experiences, or you're, maybe you're newer in your faith, and, 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 and you look at that and you go, but that, that means I'm going to be supporting their worship of Buddha or whatever God they have. And so I'm not going to eat from their donuts. I'm going to go to that second best donut shop in town, even though they're not quite as fresh. Right? And so you're going to be on different sides. And so if we did this for a while, and if, if we were to bring this into the church, there would be some of you who would start to rub. You, you, those of you who felt restricted like you can't eat these donuts, you'd be saying to those who are eating, you can't do that. Because by doing that, you're supporting the worship of false gods. You're not Christian if you do that. Real Christians wouldn't do that. And then others of you, you're saying, that's just a statue. You can go buy that at, at home for $30. $30. You know? or, or I can go home and make something like that and pour it over with gold or silver or pewter or whatever. It's just a statue. Because I know, just like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, what is an idol? They're just man-made things. There is no God except the one true God. And so some of you say, so therefore I'm going to eat what's cheaper and fresher. And it would cause a dispute. And so Paul is addressing that kind of issue. Now, I'm going to go ahead and uh, take this off because you guys are going to be distracted by that. But I'm going to leave that donut. 
Don't go all Homer Simpson on me now, though. Okay? All right, so that's what Paul's talking about. That's not a sin issue, whether you eat that donut or not. It's a disputable matter. It's secondary. Right? I mean, you, you can both be Christians, you can both be believers in Christ, and, and you can eat that donut, and you can still get along and fellowship together. That's what Paul's saying. Don't judge. But he goes on and explains why we shouldn't judge. Verse 3. The one who eats everything, so I mean that donut, must not despise the one who does not. Now, why would I despise the one who's going to refrain? Because I feel like my freedom is being stomped on all of a sudden. Because your pious self over there eating, you know, only the, the second freshest donuts, your, your, your restrictions, you're projecting them on me. But I don't have a problem eating this donut, but I feel like I'm being judged and condemned. Going on. And the one who abstains must not judge the one who eats everything, for God has accepted him. So let me say something about judging now. All right? Because you go to another place where Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 5, and he actually does give instruction for believers, Christians, to judge one another. Okay, but here's what he says first. I'm going to come back to what he means. But here's what he also says. He's right in a situation where there's this guy who's, um, you know, sleeping around with his dad's mom. That's just something you don't do, right? And, and so Paul's writing him saying, I heard about this, and you guys are proud about it. You're not even doing anything about it. And, and so he says, that's not supposed to be that way. And so he goes on and he says, I told you when I wrote you not to associate with the immoral people. But he says, I didn't mean the immoral people of the world. You can't escape that. So here's what Paul says first about judging Christian. It's not your role to judge non-Christians. You have no place doing that. Christian, it's not your role to project on a non-Christian your moral behavior. Christian, it's not your role to go and expect a non-Christian to live like you do and to accept the same morals as you do because they can't and they won't. Because when you got saved, when God delivered you, He gave you His Spirit and He gave you a new nature. When you did not have that, then you were not able to make the decision of things toward God. And so why are you going to project on someone who's not been made new, someone who's got no new spiritual life? You're going to project on them what you think they should live like. And so if someone shows up at this church and they're not a, a believer in Christ, they're welcome here, but I'm not going to say to them, uh, you didn't dress right this Sunday. Next time you come, I want to make sure you dress right. And, I, and I'm not going to say to them, uh, if I learn as I'm talking to them, hey man, I, you know, yep, this is my girlfriend, we live together. I'm not going to say, split up. Don't, don't, don't live together anymore before you start coming back. Why? Because that's, that's something as a believer that has been uh, laid out for me. But as a non-believer, why am I going to project that kind of stuff on you? I might say to you, look, that's going to go better for you. You guys split up before you get married. I can point to statistics. But it's not for me to project on someone who's not a Christian, Christian beliefs and morals. That's not my role. Why? Because Paul goes on and he says, God will judge. Leave that to God. Take that a step further. Christian, it's not our role or responsibility to project on our government to be Christian. It'd be great if they leaned that way. But the government is not inherently Christian. It might have Christians in it. But I cannot, should not impose or expect that the government is going to be Christian. Because it just is not. It's made up of lots of non-Christians. But let God be the judge. So the first thing Paul says is, believers, you have no place in judging unbelievers, those outside of the church. It's not your role. But then he says to believers, but you should judge one another. And what he means is not what we typically do. What Paul does not mean is go and condemn someone. 
Go and condemn your brother or sister in Christ and, and condemn them so that they know they're not welcome among you. What he's saying is no. For the Christian to judge one another, it's an issue of accountability. Hold one another accountable. It's not to condemn, it's for care. Right? So because condemning, God's already covered that. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. So then why would I put myself in a position where I'm going to condemn you and say, you're not welcome. You, you can't be in. But instead, I'm going to come alongside you as a brother or sister who has a relationship with you, and I'm going to, I'm going to hold you accountable and say, man, that's not the path you need to be walking. You say you're a believer in Christ, but here's what the Bible says about what you're doing. It's care. It's not condemnation. All right? So Paul here is talking about issues that are disputable. And he says, don't judge. Why? Because we go on. At the end of verse 3, the one who eats everything, for God has accepted him. Don't judge because God has accepted him. And verse 4 builds on that. Who are you to pass judgment on another servant? Before his own master he stands or falls and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, you, you're in no position to judge. God's the one who's going to judge. And if he's a believer in Christ, he's going to stand. You know why? Because God's going to make him stand. And then he uses this imagery of a slave and a, and a master. He says, look, you have no place going to another person's slave and judging him. Put it in our, our, our framework, you're a parent. Someone comes up and tells you how to raise your kids. And they don't have kids of their own. Right? And you start saying, hey, stop telling me how to raise my kids. Why don't you go get a kid first, raise them, apply your own values that you're trying to project on me, see if it works, and then come back. But what happens is you're like rising up, right? Don't tell me how to raise my kids. Those kids stand or fall before me, not you. Right? So it's like in my home, if, if one of my kids is fighting with one another and, and the older is trying to influence the younger to do something, and they say, well, if you don't do this, you're going to get this. And the younger comes and starts crying. Mommy, Daddy, this is what you know the older sister said. And, and, and I, the response that Lindsay and I would say to them typically is, who's your parent? Who, you, right. Does your sister have any authority over you? No. So then move on. Like, let me be the parent here. She can't do what she says she's going to do. Let us be the parent. You go be the kid. We'll take care of it, right? You will stand or you will fall before me, not your sister. Right? I have no, your sister has no right to do what she did. That's what Paul's saying. So don't judge. Say, don't judge. All right, these will move a little quicker now. Then you've got to check the motive. You've got to check the motive. Why are they doing what they're doing? So verse 5, one person regards one day holier than another day. So he gives this other example. So some people, they're, they're still holding on to these special holy days. They're worshiping on certain festival days. Maybe it's the Sabbath that they're honoring. And Paul says, look, there's a group of you who you believe this day is a holy day and you honor it above every other day. But then there's another group of you that realize that every day is the same. And, and so you don't. And so he says, look, he goes on and he says, each must be fully convinced in his own mind. And there's a key. You've got to be convinced in your own mind. You can't go forward and violate your faith if your faith has not caught up to that point. He said, you've got to be convinced in your own mind. I'd be like this, right? Uh, Sundays. Do you work on Sundays or not? Some of you don't. Some of you do. Maybe you're here this morning because you happen to be scheduled off. But you maybe go to church on Saturday instead. But there are some people who would, who would say, man, you can't work on Saturday, Sundays. I went through that phase. I worked at the OG, the Olive Garden. And I told them when I got interviewed, I can't work on Sundays. And I stood by that for a year and a half. Never worked a Sunday, not even Mother's Day, which is everybody on deck. Right? I went through that because I was convinced at that point, I can't work on Sunday. Thanks, man. Now I work every Sunday. All right. So 
He says, look, the, the key is you've got to be convinced in your own mind. The one who observes the day does it for the Lord. The one who eats, eats for the Lord because he gives thanks to God. And the one who abstains from eating abstains from the Lord and he gives thanks to God. But the key Paul is saying is that the one who restricts himself, he's doing it for the Lord. In other words, he's trying to live in a way that is pure and he's submitting himself to the Lord. And the one who's enjoying his freedom, he's doing it while giving thanks to the Lord. Disclaimer. Thank you, Lord. Not what I'm talking about. Non-sin issues here. Don't leave here and say, well, the pastor said don't judge. And as long as I do it unto the Lord. Not what Paul is talking about here. These are the parameters. Non-sin issues. Secondary. Non-moral issues. Okay? Don't walk out of here and, and use me to you know, indulge in whatever you want to indulge in. The one who eats, eats for the Lord because he gives thanks to God. We're going to go on here in verse 7. And here's the key. None of us lives for himself. And none dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Christian, you do not belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you belong to the Lord. So the way we live our lives should be unto the Lord. And the things we restrict ourselves from, it should be because we're trying to pursue purity with the Lord. And the things that we enjoy that God has created, we should enjoy them as a, a blessing from God, but not allow those things to influence us. Anytime we take something God has designed that might be good and right, and we enjoy it to the point where now it has control over us, you've gone too far. You, you've overindulged. You've not enjoyed that unto the Lord. You've just enjoyed that. And Paul says, so check the motive. Are they doing what they're doing? Because they're living for the Lord. Are, are they doing what they're doing because they believe at this point in their faith walk that this is what it looks like for me to live for the Lord? Again, non-moral issues, not sin. For this reason, verse 9, Christ died and returned to life so that he may be the Lord of both the living and the dead. So check the motive. So we don't judge. I don't judge. Check the motive. And then leave it to God. Drop it. Let it go. Move on. Verse 10. But you who eat vegetables only, why do you judge your brother or sister? And you who eat everything, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will give praise to God. Therefore, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Here's what Paul's saying. Look, every single person on this earth will have to stand before God. And you will do so on your own. You will not be giving account for someone else's actions. You will be giving account for your own. So that person who, maybe you're someone who you're restricting yourself, and you're looking at someone enjoying freedom, and you're going, no, they shouldn't be doing that. You know, i got to tell them, nope. As long as it's not a sin issue, you leave it alone. They're going to stand before God and have to give an answer for that if, if they're in sin. And you, on the other side, if you're restricting yourself, and you're restricting yourself because you think by somehow abstaining from something is going to make you holier or going to make you uh, more acceptable to God, well, you're going to have to stand for that too. Paul says, let go. Leave it to God. All right? Don't judge them if it's a disputable matter. Start, start with a disposition of I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to condemn you so that you're not accepted among me. I'm not going to judge, but I, I want to check the motive. Hey, why are you doing what you're doing? Why don't you eat that? Why don't you? Man, and if they're doing it under the Lord, leave it to God. You know what? So I wanted to um, 
bring again, bring this back a little further to home, because if, if this is our goal in the church, we want the weak and the strong to get along. All right? What does that look like in a church today? And so I'm not going to qualify a lot of these because we're, we're out of time here. But in the church over the years, here's some things that have come up. Should I go to the movies or not? Should I dance or not? Or is only certain types of dancing uh, 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 appropriate or not? Uh, drinking alcohol. Worshiping on Sunday. Right? That's typically what's been in the church. Now, if I bring this kind of up to date, some of those things have fallen off on the wayside. For some people, it's still relevant. Right? But, you know, things like um, whether I go to an R movie or not, you don't typically find that in most churches. You'll find it in some. Right? But nowadays, there's other things that kind of are in our everyday life. Drinking is still one of them. So the only thing I'm going to say about that is the scripture is very clear on not being drunk. Don't be influenced or controlled by another substance. Right? But when it comes to actually enjoying the things that God has created, there's not as clear, explicit um, statements on that. So there are statements about be wise. Alcohol is a mockery. It can do this to you. But with, with regard to drinking alcohol, that's why Christians are on different sides. Because there's clearly a prohibition against drunkenness. But not so much against drinking. And so you've got people on both sides. Alright? Here's some, some other ones. Do I celebrate Christmas and Easter? Because they got pagan roots after all. I mean, I come across people and they say, I don't celebrate Christmas. Oh really, why not? Well, because they've got pagan roots. That tree that you guys put up, and that's just an idol worship to a, a false god. And those round ornaments, man, they're just, they're just about worshiping false gods. So that's why I don't celebrate Christmas. That's just a man-made thing. You, you've taken that over from the pagan. Same thing with Easter. You just celebrate Ishtar is all you're doing. Christians just made that. Made that. All right. But then on the other side, you've got the Christian going, um, but Christmas is when I celebrate the birth of Christ in my culture. Easter is when I celebrate the resurrection of Christ in my culture. Yes, maybe they have some roots where they were similar in festivals, but somewhere along the way, Christians said, look, we're going to take that Christmas tree that you guys think points to your false God, and we're going we're gonna to uh, uh, redeem that. And for us, that's a symbol of, it points to the one true God. And the fact that that tree never dies because it's an evergreen, it points to the eternal life that our God gives. They're redeeming that. Easter, same kind of story, right? Here's, here's the thing. What I like to say to those kind of people is, so you don't think we should take anything from culture or other non-Christian things and redeem them. Right, right, right. So what do you do with the cross? Because that's not Christian. It wasn't before Christ died on it, at least. It's a torture instrument. It's like the lethal injection syringe, or the electric chair, or the, the gallows, right? That's what it was, and it was a torture instrument that had been perfected, and then one day our Savior died on it, and then since then Christians have used the cross as a symbol of hope and as a symbol for our sacrifice and our Savior. But man, that's not a Christian thing. It had no Christian roots. So we pick and choose what we redeem. All right, we're moving on. Here we go. Practicing Halloween. Do I participate in Halloween or not? Because after all, we're celebrating demons and, and all that. Well, some, some don't. Some, they protest and they say, I'm turning my life off. Cool, okay, if that's what your conscience is, that's where your faith is, fine. On the other side, you've got Christians who go, yeah, but I understand where it came from, but my kids probably don't have any kind of inkling that when they dress up like Paw Patrol, they're supposed to be scaring away demons. And I'm not encouraging them in that. Now, some of you think Paw Patrol is demons. That's okay. Right? But so they participate, and they think, man, it's a great way for me to reach my community, and all my neighbors are doing participating in this, and I can do this with a clean conscience. They get people on both sides. All right? Here's another one for you. What clothes do I wear to church? Pants? Shorts. Short sleeves or long sleeves? Do I have to wear a tie? Coat? Skirt or, or, or pants, okay, for women. Should I have my head covered? Uh, is the type of clothes that I wear, uh, is that important? What about how I do my hair? 
I mean, all that kind of stuff. Should I go barefoot or not? You know, there's a day where I used to lead worship at a church, and I led barefoot. It made some people really mad. That's unholy, they said. Okay, but yet God said to Moses, take off your feet before you stand up on the ground. Okay. Take off your shoes. Take off your feet. God does not endorse that. Do I wear hats in church or not? Some people okay with it, some not. Do I nurse or do I feed my baby formula? Schooling. Public, private, or home? Last one for you. Do I still shop at Target? I mean, people on both sides, not a moral issue, but you get my point. Paul would say to us, how do we get the church the weak and the strong to get along? You are not God. So, let's say it one more time together. Don't judge. If you're able, will you please stand and do this? Yes. I think I've given you plenty. Hey, remember, if you're visiting for the first time this morning, I'd love to say hello, shake a hand, answer questions, exit these doors, hang right, meet you by the couches there. Hang right. And with that, you may be strong, you may be weak, but either way, if you stand, you stand because God is able to make you stand. So be out of each other's business and go live. And do that in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you guys next week.